Uh, just a quick thing here. Um, uh, this is from uh, Highland Elementary. And uh, so there are uh, 25 kiddos that we apparently served over at uh, Highland Elementary. And each one of them wrote a thank you note. And uh, I'll just read one from Tevin right here, which says, Thank you, Outward Church, for Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, there are uh, Christmas, you know, thanks for Christmas trees, thanks for the gifts, all this type of stuff throughout here. But I just want to tell you what that represents. Let that sink in for just a second. Outward Church just told 25 people, at least, 25 kids know that Outward Church cares about them. If Outward Church would go, to, go away today, uh, I think that Highland Elementary, at least 25 kids at, tw- at Highland Elementary, uh, would be sad about that, okay? This is why it's important for us to be in the city and to be for our city and uh, to be serving them. This is why it's important. Not just this. We, we served over 1,000 people uh, over uh, Thanksgiving and um, that was an excellent thing. And so I just want to continue to say thank you to all of you who gave towards that and who helped serve. And we want to say thank you to the school district and Sedexo, the company that runs their kitchens and their generosity with us. God has clearly gone before us. He has made the way uh, for us to be able to go and serve our community and serve them well. And so we have, um, we're, we're just praying about vision for next year. Um, about what, what would it look like for us to serve every kid in, in, in an elementary school in Salem-Kaiser that is not going to have uh, Thanksgiving. I don't know that we'll get there, uh, but that's, that's what I'm praying about, and I'm, I'm praying to see if, if uh, the Lord would, would lead us in that direction. Um, but just, just to be clear, if we had 1,000 people, 1,000 families, that would be $70,000. Um, that's a lot of money. But um, God has been gracious uh, to us by allowing us to raise, I think it was seventeen thousand this last uh, this Thanksgiving. So that was incredible. And then um, I've just I don't know. Some of you may know that that um, I can't remember if I mentioned this on a Sunday morning or not. But um, the Statesman Journal did an article on us, and if you saw it, great. If not, um, uh, whatever. And so uh, <laughs> um, in any case, it, it went on Facebook. That's how you might know about it. But um, uh, in any case, a great article on Outward Church, very fair, um, and a lot of people have seen that. And so um, the only reason why we're, we're excited about that is so that more people will, will see that God is doing something here and give towards uh, what's, what's happening in our community. So we're excited about that. Um, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 8, and if you know your Bible at all, you know you're in for it this morning. And so... Uh, <laughs> um, and so, uh, Daniel chapter 8. So if you want to turn there, that'd be awesome. You should follow along if you have a Bible. Um, it's complicated. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's very complicated. I told you last week, um, if you weren't here, I, I told the church, like, I debated on whether I would teach on this. A lot of guys, they teach up uh, to chapter 6, and, and then they end their Daniel series, and you'll see why. But um, in, in any case... I think the thing that I've been convicted about this week is that this is, all, all of this is God's word, and all of it is, is, is for the purpose uh, of preaching and teaching, correcting, rebuking, so on and so forth. And so we want to fully take in all of the word of God, and, and so that means that every part of that, even the parts that we may not like, um, we want to take those in. 
Now, some of us are like them a little too much, like, like um, uh, prophecy or apocalyptic literature um, a little too much. We read too much into it, and that is a serious danger, and, and people just get so wrapped up in that stuff trying to figure things out when in reality, um, the Father is the only one, God the Father is the only one that knows. Jesus says, I don't even know. It's the Father who knows when the end will be and exactly what all the circumstances are there, but, uh, but God clearly wants us to know some things, but he doesn't want us to know everything. So apocalyptic literature is uh, picture language. It is painting a picture for us with words. And so this picture is, is as I said, uh, somewhat confusing. Now, chapter 8, let me explain something to you really quickly, um, and that is that chapter 8 is a specific vision. Chapter 7 is a general vision. Chapter 7 is a, is a dream. It's a, it's a vision that God gives to Daniel about four kingdoms, and then ultimately that, that leads to uh, the Antichrist. That is a, it is a general vision, and so it's talking about these four kingdoms. And so uh, that's, that's what that is. So the two middle kingdoms uh, are what chapter 8 is about uh, within this uh, context. And then I also believe that it talks about the real end of days, which is um, basically the book of Revelation and things of that nature. But um, in any case, we're going to get into this and, um, and, and, and talk about this. Let me first say this, though. I've got two people that I, that I do need to uh, recognize, uh, two authors, Sidney Gradanus and Sinclair Ferguson. If anything sounds remotely smart this morning, it will be from those guys. So, um, so if you ever have to teach on Daniel chapter 8, you should read Sidney Grudanus's, uh, uh commentary and Sinclair Ferguson's because they are good. And so uh, we, here we go. Chapter 8 says this, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So real quick, one second, in the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. Belshazzar is a Babylonian king. In the first year, Daniel has essentially what we know as chapter 7, which is his first vision in regards to that, okay? As I said, that's the general vision. Now, we're talking about the third year. So fast forward two more years, still in the Babylonian kingdom. Daniel is serving in the Babylonian kingdom. He works for the king. And so he's having a vision about the Babylonian kingdom, and, or actually not about the Babylonian kingdom, but he, while he's in the Babylonian kingdom, about the future. And God is the one who has given him this vision. Verse 2, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel. Where's the Susa, the citadel? It's in Babylon which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. So now he's in Persia. So at first he's in Babylon, and then all of a sudden he has this vision, and he's, he's taken to another place. He's taken to Persia. So he's um, at the Ulai Canal. Verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram... Standing on the bank of the canal, it had two horns, and both horns, uh, it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Okay, so 
the reason why that's important is that in verse 20, which is a little bit later here, it's going to tell us this. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So what, what, he, was, what he is told in verse 20 is that he is having a vision about the Medo-Persian Empire. He's having a vision about the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, if you look back to last week, if you remember this at all, there was a bear, and one side of the bear was higher than the other. And this bear represents Medo-Persia, we believe. And the reason why it's higher on one side than the other is because the Persian Empire, uh, or the Persian Kingdom, which is inside of the Medo-Persian Empire, that Persian Kingdom is actually stronger than the Medes, okay? And so the Persian Empire is stronger. So this ram that's standing on the bank um, has one horn that's higher than the other. And so, and then verse 20 tells us that this is the Medo-Persian Empire as well. Okay, so we're talking about the Medo-Persian Empire. This, this ram is standing there. Verse 4, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. So what's, what's happening here? So, uh, what, and, and this is what Sidney Gradena says. To the west, Medo-Persia conquered Babylonia, Syria, Asia Minor, and even made great moves toward Europe by making raids on Greece. To the north, it conquered Armenia and the area around the Caspian Sea. To the south, it conquered Egypt and Ethiopia. What's happening here is that this ram represents a world kingdom. So it is a world power, very strong, very large, very big. Now remember, Daniel's in Babylon. Babylon is still in power. He's seeing ahead of time prophecy of what's going to happen with the uh, Medo-Persian Empire. Looking back now, we know that these things took place because of everything that I just read to you, that they conquered Babylonia, Syria, Asia Minor, and uh, raids on Greece and Armenia and, the, and all of that place, and then Egypt as well. So we know that these things took place. Now, here we go, verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Let me stop you right there. We have a ram who represents Medo-Persia, and he's very strong. He's conquered all of these enemies all the way around him. And then all of a sudden, now we have a goat, and he came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. So what does that mean? It means that this goat is moving at a very high rate of speed. Okay, he's not even touching the ground. He looks like a lightning bolt. It's a goat, and so he's flying across the ground. Okay, so this flying goat. Remember, I said this picture language, okay? And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So it's a unigoat, right? He's, he's running. It's, it's the thing that it, oh, it, it just makes me laugh because it's, he's just had this conspicuous horn. Like all of his buddies are like, dude, did you know you have a horn? Like it's just kind of coming out in the middle there. And, and so it, there's this conspicuous horn. It's coming out between his eyes. And so verse 6 says, he came to the ram with the two horns. So the goat is coming to the ram. The goat is coming to Medo-Persia. The goat with the conspicuous horn is coming to Medo-Persia. Um, to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. 
and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Now, again, a little bit complicated here. If we fast forward a little bit to the interpretation, which is a little bit later in the passage, verse 21 tells us, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Who is the great king, the first king of uh, the Greek empire? Well, that is uh, Alexander the Great, who conquers Medo-Persia with amazing speed. In fact, uh, in 334 BC, according to Sidney Gridanus, he launched his attack against Persia. With only 35,000 men, Alexander's forces plunged through the Granicus River, attacking Darius, uh, Darius's, Darius's king of, of Babylon. Um, actually, I'm sorry, Medo-Persia. Um, he attacked Darius's 100,000 footmen and 10,000 horsemen, reportedly killing 20,000 at a loss of only 100 Greek troops. Complete victory was assured at the battles of Issus and, and the following year, and at uh, Guagomel at uh, 331 BC. Within three years, Alexander the Great conquered the whole Near East. So again, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about prophecy. This hasn't happened. We're talking about the Greek Empire conquering the Medo-Persian Empire, how quickly that took place. Look at this picture language. Look at how this happens. Look at how God decides to describe what's going to take place. Verse 8, and the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now, what, what is the great horn? Uh, what does it mean that the great horn was broken? It means that God took down Alexander the Great. God is the one who took him out. You look throughout the book, uh, the book of Daniel and obviously throughout Scripture, what you see is that God is the one who's in control of kingdoms. God uh, is the one who gave... Um, Nebuchadnezzar, the dream of this statue, this statue that has a head of gold and this of silver and this of bronze and this of, of iron, and, and God is telling Nebuchadnezzar, hey, there's this huge statue, it represents all of these kingdoms of the earth, and, but then the kingdom of God is going to come with a stone that is not hewn uh, by human hands, so this is from God, and God's kingdom is going to smash all the kingdoms of the earth, and they're going to be blown away like the chaff, and then the kingdom of God is going to become this mountain uh, that, that comes into being throughout the whole earth and, and all things, and it will be the kingdom of God which overtakes everything. So what is this saying? It's saying that God is taking down Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great became sick and died uh, when he was only 33 years old. Uh, when that happened... His kingdom fell apart. So what it says is, in its place there came up four prominent horns. That is that four kingdoms came up as a result. So when Alexander dies, um, it sounds like Alexander implemented uh, four kings. He put four kings in charge of his kingdom. So he puts these kings in charge of his kingdom, and then he dies. So now there's four kingdoms within sight of the Greek empire. 
And so, uh, and each one of these is ruled by one of Alexander's uh, generals. So then verse 9 now, we're moving pretty quickly here, I know. But verse 9 skips over 150 years of clashes between the Syrian Seleucids and the Egyptian Ptolemies uh, until it comes to another horn. Now read verse 9 with me. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great. So out of one of these kingdoms, there's four kingdoms, four horns that come out of uh, this, uh, this goat. And out of one of those horns comes another little horn. And this little horn grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. This is getting important right here. So one of the four divisions of the Alexandrian Empire was that of Syria, which was governed by one of Alexander's generals. His name was Seleucus Nicantor. And he was the originator of the Seleucid dynasty. So Antiochus Epiphanes emerged within this dynasty bearing all the demonic characteristics of the little horn of Daniel's vision. Now this is, it's kind of crazy, but so we have this kingdom, it comes up, and then, uh, and, and then out of that kingdom comes this little horn. This little horn is a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He is the eighth ruler of the Seleucid kingdom in Syria. And he starts out little because he is not an actual heir to the throne. It looks like, it sounds like, he bribed his way into becoming king. And so he's, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's a dark figure. And so um, Antiochus became king and he started his conquest. So it says that he grew exceedingly, exceedingly great toward the south. Uh, so in, in the south, he invaded Egypt. In the east, he conquered Persia, uh, Parthia, Armenia, and toward the glorious land. Now, what is the glorious land? It says at the end of, uh, of verse 9, it says, toward the glorious land. The glorious land is where God's people live. It is the promised land. It's where God's people are. And, the, and, and so Daniel is starting to probably understand, maybe a little bit. He says he doesn't understand, but he may understand a little bit. And that is that the glorious land is talking about the homeland of his people. And what it's saying is it's saying that this guy is coming after them. This guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, is coming after them. So God's people live in the glorious land. A little bit about Antiochus is that uh, Antiochus's real name is just Antiochus IV. He added uh, the last bit, which is Epiphanes, um, which uh, Sinclair Ferguson says was a blasphemous title he arrogated to himself later in his reign, which essentially means the illustrious God. So this guy has a God complex. So he's in power, he has a God complex, he believes that he is all-powerful, and he is going to be a serious problem for God's people. Verse 10, it, uh, what is it? We're talking about the little horn, we're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, grew great even to the host of heaven. The host of heaven. Who is the host of heaven? It's Israel. He grows great to the host of heaven. He's, he grows great. His arrogance is pushing towards God's people and towards God. And some of the host and some of the stars 
it, the little horn, threw down to the ground and trampled on them. So little horn is, is growing great towards the host of heaven. He's coming after Israel. He throws some of them down, and he tramples on them. Now, what, what, what does this mean that he tramples on them? It means that they are going to be persecuted, and persecuted they will be. And so a book about this persecution was written. It is not Scripture, though. However, you can read the book. It's not included in the canon of Scripture. Now, the Catholic Church included it, um, but uh, those of us who are evangelicals, who have come from the Re Reformation, Protestant Christians, do not include it. There's some specific reasons for that. I'm hoping to do a study on the canon, and I'll tell you more about that. Long story short, if you read it, you might even see why it should not be included as Scripture. Uh, but it does tell the story of Israel during this time. It's called 1st Maccabees. In fact, there are 1st, uh, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees, I believe. Uh, but really, 1st and 2nd Maccabees are the ones that talk about this persecution. It's a very fascinating read if you were to read it. And now, don't read it as Scripture. Read it as history. Uh, but um, in that book, it includes the tales of Antiochus Epiphanes and, of course, uh, the hero who emerges from this, whose name is Judas Maccabees, which we won't get into a ton. But that book says this. It says that Antiochus ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy everyone they encountered and to butcher all who took refuge in their houses. This is of God's people. It was a massacre, massacre of young and old, a slaughter of, I'm not going to say everything because it, it's gruesome, of everyone. Um, it says this in the end, there were 80,000 victims in the course of those three days, 40,000 dying by violence, and as many again being sold into slavery. So that's from uh, 2 Maccabees uh, chapter 5, uh, verses uh, 12 through 14. Again, it's not scripture. Now, let's, let's think back for a second. Daniel is in the Babylonian Empire. He's hearing about the Medo-Persian Empire which is going to be taken down by the Greek Empire, which then is going to be, you know, four other empires are going to come up as a result of that. And then this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, is going to do all these things. He doesn't know all those names. He's just looking ahead going, okay, whatever. So we have the benefit of the past. But we're looking at prophecy that has been fulfilled. Verse 11. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Prince of the host seems like he's talking about God, the prince of the host. The host is God's people, the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. What's, what's it saying? Whose sanctuary are we talking about in the glorious land? In the glorious land is where God's people are. Their temple is God's temple. That's where he is at. And so what is this saying? It's saying that uh, the regular burnt offering, the daily sacrifices, the process that God had commanded his people to go through day in and day out in order to meet with him was removed. It was removed. And so they're, they're not able to do that anymore. And then the sanctuary uh, was overthrown. And so the sanctuary, the temple, is just, it's defiled. And so what we see is this. In, uh, in, in 167 B.C., according to Gradanus, he says this, Antiochus issued the order that the regular ceremonial observances to Yahweh, that is God, 
were forbidden, and thus sacrifices ceased being offered to him. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just that uh, Antiochus uh, orders all of this to stop. I mean, this, uh, when you read through Maccabees, uh, when you read this stuff, I mean, it looks like communist China, uh, the Soviet Union. It looks like what you would imagine uh, would be taking place. They're ordered not to worship and serve their God. It says that Antiochus insulted God even more. The book of Maccabees reports that he had the audacity to enter the holiest temple in the entire world. He enters into God's temple. With his unclean hands, he seized the sacred vessels and took them away, and then he defiled the altar with the first pagan sacrifices, which probably included unclean pigs. Thus, Antiochus not only persecuted God's people, but also directly attacked the God of Israel. Look back at verse 10 with me. He became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. So he's going after God. He's attacking God. He's attacking his sanctuary. He's attacking his people. He's defiling the temple. I mean, this is, it is awful stuff. Again, you should go back and read this history because it is really fascinating and horrific at the same time. Verse 12 says this, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression and it will throw truth to the ground and it will act, it will act and prosper. Now what is, what is that saying right there? Verse 12. So the host is Israel and the host is going to be given over to Antiochus Epiphanes and his kingdom and they're going to be thrashed. They're going to be persecuted. Now who are they given by? They're given by God. Why? Because of transgression. For all the weirdness of this passage and everything that's going on here, with the benefit of being post uh, all of these events, we can look back and we can see, like, man, this is awful stuff. God judges his people on a level that is just like, man, God, you would allow that to take place? You would allow that to be the case? They're given over to these people, they're given to them. I don't know what your theology is about who God is. Some of you are, are in school right now and you're, you're studying some of these things. But if your theology doesn't, doesn't include God doing whatever God decides to do, it's, it's not a biblical theology. God chooses to do whatever he wants. God gives them over and it's and along with the regular burnt offering, why would God do this to himself? These sacrifices are for God. They're for God. And God allows it to be taken away. God allows it to be destroyed because of what? Because of transgression. Transgression on whose part? The host, God's people. God is judging his people because of their transgressions. Sidney Grudena says this. It says that um, when Daniel writes in 8.12, because of the wickedness of the host given over to it together with a burnt offering, he's really saying that because of Israel's wickedness, God gave his people over to the little horn. God gave that. It says this um, a, a little bit further. It says one of Israel's martyrs says this, we are suffering like this 
through our own fault, having sinned against our own God, the result has been terrible. It says that in 2 Maccabees 7.18. What, what was this wickedness? Maccabees relates that King Antiochus issued a proclamation to his whole kingdom that all were to become a single people, each renouncing his particular custom. Why is this important? Because Antiochus comes to God's people and he says, we're going to become one people. We're going to become a people without religious customs, without, without stuff, and we're, all, we're, all, we're going to take on our own religion. We're going to take on our own faith. We're going to take on our own stuff. And so he tells them, essentially, what we hear day in and day out. Now, do not hear me saying that we're in some great type of um, persecution today. This is a cakewalk, by the way, compared to what other people are going, going through in history and even today. But what he's saying is similar to what we hear today, which is, it's fine if you have your own religion, but that's private. Keep it to yourself. It's fine. That's, that's fine. Believe what you want to, but it, when you bring that to the public square, you're done. You're done. It comes out really easily with the whole gay marriage debate with uh, what's going on in the Supreme Court right now, they're going to decide on whether the uh, uh, cake baker uh, has the ability to refuse to bake a cake for somebody for a gay wedding. It's fine if you have your religion. It's just got to be private. You have to join in with what we're doing. You, have, you need to lend approval to, to this. And it's not just gay marriage. I mean, Christians really get hung up on that sometimes. And sometimes we get so hung up on those things that we don't take... Uh, take note of our own issues. We don't take note of our own problems, our own hypocrisies, our own problems, our racism sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. Our, our politicizing of our religion, somehow identifying Christianity with the, with the religious right, with, with republicanism. And then there's other people who, who tend to be more liberal in their thinking. Their Christianity is defined by their liberalism, by their po political liberal, liberalism. It, it's, it's this idea of let's all become uh, uh, one people uh, that, that, that our, our culture wants, and our culture wants us to go their way, whether that's right or left, but it's basically leave behind the things of Yahweh. Leave behind the things that God would have you do because that God is not real according to them. That's what's happening here. It says that it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. So not only is that going to take place, not only are these people going to sin, but they're going to throw truth to the ground. It says this uh, a little bit further in Gradanus. All the pagans conformed to the king's decree, and many Israelites chose to accept his religion, sacrificing to idols and profaning the Sabbath. The book further tells us that they built a gymnasium, some type of building in, Israel, in, in Jerusalem, such as the pagans have, disguised their circumcision. Their circumcision is a mark of, of, of their holiness, their identification with God. Seems weird, but that's what they did as a command of God. And they abandoned the holy covenant, submitting to the heathen rule as willing slaves of impiety. In short, many Israelites disobeyed God's law and broke his covenant. Lots of people 
just abandoned their faith. What can you take from that? It's apocalyptic literature. It's picture language. It's, it's talking about horrific times. But what can you take from that? God is really serious about his people following him even when times get hard. Even when times get hard. Even when certain death is at the door or even when you feel like you're going to die. I said something last week just about how sometimes we walk away from our marriages because, because things get hard. And I, and, I, and I meant that. But that isn't to criticize anyone or to try to guilt, uh, give guilt to someone who has been divorced. But that is kind of the way that it goes, isn't it? It's like, you know, the, my, the culture is going this way. And whether we know it or not, oftentimes we join in with the idolatry. We join in with the idolatry, and, and as a result of what's happening in culture or what's happening around us and the busyness that we have, whether it's, I mean, you, you just name it. Where, where's, your, where's your busyness at? A lot of us have young kids, and so what's going to start happening is that uh, more and more we're going to be pulled into all different types of things, all, all different kinds of things that our kids are involved with, whether it's sports or music or what have you. And the culture is like pulling us that way. And they're saying, that's okay if that's your religion, but if you want to do this sport, you want to do this thing, like you've got to give up that. And they're not saying it explicitly. But in essence, it's basically, it's scheduling things all the time when we come together as a church. And at some point, God's people have to stand up and say, like, like I know that God's people did this in the past. They gave up meeting together. They gave, up, they gave up the sacrifices. The sacrifices today would, would essentially be the acknowledgement of the gospel, what Jesus did for us on the cross. They give up acknowledging the gospel on a daily basis. And instead of it's them sacrificing themselves for their God, everything is sacrificed on the altar of God. They start, they, they start having unclean sacrifices themselves. They're saying, you know, I'm going to sacrifice family for uh, accelerating in my job. I'm going to sacrifice all kinds of things for this payoff so that my kid can get into the right college and so that they can be a superstar and so that they can be amazing. I mean, I mean there's just innumerable things that could happen. I mean, you just need to think about in your life what keeps you from walking with God, what keeps you from doing the daily sacrifices. God's people in this time, some of them walked in transgression. They continually did this. They continually did these things. And God allowed them to be judged. And so I'm not here threatening you with judgment because Jesus went to the cross for that judgment. What I am saying is that when you understand the excruciating pain that Jesus went through, the persecution that he went through in your place, like that has ramifications in our lives. That has ramifications for who we are. It means that, I mean, you could look at all of this persecution. I'm just thinking of this right now, but you can look at all of this persecution right now, and you can go, man, like, in, in a way, what they're going through is a precursor for what Jesus goes through. Excruciating. The word excruciating means of the cross. It's excruciating pain. Jesus goes through the persecution, and he, he dies, he's buried, he's risen again. That brings about resurrection uh, in his life, but also in our life. So if you are a resurrected person, if you're somebody who has, who's experiencing and living in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then that means that Jesus took your persecution, in some senses, for you. 
And when, when you can look at that in gratitude and you can say, Jesus went to the cross for me, and he fully takes on all of my persecution, and so therefore I can deal with the daily sacrifices. I don't need to go to the gymnasium to, to worship false idols or whatever it is. I don't need to cover up the marks of who God is in my life. Did, did you see what they said? They, they covered up the marks of circumcision. I don't know how that happened. But they covered up the marks of, of who God is in their life. How are you covering up the marks of who God is in your life? I told this story maybe a few weeks ago. I was walking with a friend who I really like. He doesn't go here. He'll probably never listen to this, so I can say it. But. And he did something that I've, I've felt myself do, which is we're talking about Jesus. We're walking down the sidewalk, and then somebody walks by, and his voice lowers because we're talking about Jesus. Ooh. Ooh. You know, we've gotten so far... To, to the point where you have these morons on the street corner that are sc screaming about God and damnation and all of this stuff. And we go, I don't want to be that guy. So we, we go to the other extreme. We say, I don't ever want to say Jesus. The problem is that no one ever sees anybody normal talking about Jesus, right? Just see idiots with signs that say God hates fags and things like that. And so people like you and I, uh, and hopefully you're normal. I haven't met you or whatever. I'm I don't want to make any assumptions. This is the church after all. But, uh, uh, but uh, people need to see us. People need to see who we are. They need to see that I, I walk with God. I walk with Yahweh. I walk with that weird God of the apocalyptic literature. I, I, I'm, I am interested in him. And more than interested, my entire life is sold out for who he is. People need to see that. So when we're joining in with, with culture, what that, what that looks like is that we are covering up the marks of circumcision. We're not attending uh, the temple. And we're not doing the daily sacrifices. So we're covering up who, who God is in our life. We're obeying Antiochus Epiphanes, the illustrious God, lowercase, the illustrious God. We're obeying this Antichrist. We're obeying the enemy of our soul by saying, I don't want anybody to know. I'm going to sacrifice everything in my life for my kingdom. And ultimately, what we're doing is we're just joining in with the Antichrist. So you're, you're serving Satan you know, when, you, when you do that. Basically, that's what we're doing. That's, that's what it is. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, so he's hearing these holy ones. One of them speaking. Another one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. 
Okay, I think it's, I think it's important that you understand what this is saying, and that is that he is, um, this angel, this figure is asking, how long? How long? And it's a question that you and I can ask all the time. It's, it's, it's a, God, how long do I have to deal with the situation that I'm dealing with? And it's, it's, it is the, it, it's the issue that we find in so many different areas of life. In our, our, our society of instant success, followed by fast food and um, instant access to messaging and information and all of this stuff. The fact that things don't move in that pace, in that digital pace, and that we have to wait for God, and we have to ask the question like, God, for how long? How long are you going to allow this to take place? It's, it is a real question that we have to ask. God, how long are you going to allow this to happen? How long are you going to allow your temple to be trampled? How long are you going to allow what it says here, uh, the transgression that makes desolate? What's the transgression that makes desolate? It's the defiling of the altar, the pig being uh, sacrificed on the altar of God. It defiles the temple. How long are you going to allow that to happen? Because that transgression then keeps all of the other Jews from being able to worship there. It's a sin that keeps everyone out. How long are you going to do this? And this is comforting and it's not comforting. He says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Oh, is that all? That's it, huh? Just 2,300? Why not 2,310? You know, like, what? what? God, why? We can't answer that question. You want to know why? I do, too. I can't answer the question. Too often, our theology leads us to trying to get specific answers to specific things. That's why people try to read into Daniel, and they try to say all these things. They want to get it down to the minutia. They want to know exactly what God is doing, why he's doing it, and they don't want him to act like God. They want him to act like a person. But God says... I'm going to allow this persecution, which is ultimately God's judgment, I'm going to allow this persecution to happen for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, in Jewish literature, if you look at Genesis, Genesis, it says, and there was evening and there was morning on the third day, you know, and there was evening and there was morning. So they're counting days from sunup to sundown. So this is talking about days, I believe. Other people don't think so. Who cares? Whatever. It's 2,300 evenings and mornings. Whatever that time period is, it's probably six months, I'm sorry, six years and, and almost four months, okay? So what, it, what, should, what should we take from that? God has limited how long that persecution will last. God, God it, and more than that, God has determined how long it will last. God has determined God has decreed, if you will, that this persecution will last for this long. Oh, that's, that's pretty brutal, but at the same time, it's like, but God has determined. What's it mean? God's absolutely, completely, and finally in charge of not just all things that are happening, not just good things, but God is ultimately and finally in charge of everything everywhere. He guarantees this. 
that the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It says in Habakkuk, God has guaranteed that it does not matter what happens to us, where it happens, how, when it takes place, any of those things, God has guaranteed he will ultimately and finally be glorified. How will he be glorified? God may be glorified, although I don't know because I'm not God. God may be glorified through uh, the judgment of the person who is persecuting you. It may be the judgment of the, the person who abused you as a child. You know what you can take from that? God is finally in control, and you can ask him, God, why did you allow it? And I mourn for you, I weep for you, I have not had to ask that question in the way that you do. I can't feel your pain on the level that you do, although I have incredibly close friends that have dealt with that. But somehow when you read the scriptures and you say, when you see just that thing, God has determined the allotted period of time that his host will undergo uh, persecution and not just the people who are transgressors. They're being judged, but you know who's really being killed? The people who are not transgressors. Because Antiochus Epiphanes says anybody who's even caught with the book of the law, they're caught with a a Bible, the Torah at their time, will be killed. So even the, the, the people who are righteous are being killed. How long, God? How long? You know what? That's the wrong question. The right question is, God, how do I submit to your authority and your supremacy and, and, and your outright control over all things in a way that I can glorify you even in my pain? How can I glorify you even in, when I'm asking the question, how long? How do I glorify him? Because as I'm going through pain, as I'm dealing with my past, as I'm dealing with what other people have done to me or what I've done to other people, the thing, that I, the thing that I know is this, is that God knows the time period of this persecution. God knows the time period of this pain. God knows that all things will ultimately come out to glorify him. And you can say, I hate that idea that God would glorify himself through pain and agony, but I would say this, only a good God can take horrific things and make glory out of them for himself. To think otherwise is to not have faith in this God. To think otherwise is to have faith in a God of our own making. So it says this. So as I said, it's six years and almost four months. So if you look in Maccabees, in uh, 164 B.C., Judas Maccabees recaptures Jerusalem. He cleansed the temple and built a new altar The dedication of this altar was called Hanukkah, which means dedication. To this day, Jews celebrate the Feast of Hanukkah every December. It's a a Christmas apocalypse, right? This This is amazing. Hanukkah is celebrating this fact, what took place in this time. Daniel's prophesying about it, and he's saying, God, uh, God has determined this allotted period of time, this celebration is, is for that. Jews still celebrate that today. So now we're going to move real quick. Verse 15. 
says this. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, stood, uh, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. So uh, we might think that this is Jesus. It could be a, a, a picture of Jesus. We don't know for sure. Some people think it is. It's very interesting because of what I'm going to tell you in a minute. But one having an appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. Who is Gabriel? The angel Gabriel. God is the one who tells Gabriel to make, him underst- make Daniel understand the vision. Verse 17, so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. What's the end? The time of the end of the 2,300 mornings and evenings, six months, uh, I'm sorry, six years and four months. So he's saying that this is a vision for a time of the end, but I think it's also, see, in prophetic literature, it's talking about something close a lot of times, but it's also talking about something far away. I'll come back to that if I have time. And it says, Verse 18, and when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep and my face with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end, the end of the persecution. As for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. Whose power is it? It's not with his power. It could be with Satan's power. I think it's with God's power. God has already said, I'm the one who stands up kingdoms, and I'm the one that tears them down. It's with God's power. God is the one who's brought this on. He's allowed this to take place because of their transgressions. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men. So who's he destroying? He's destroying political and military enemies and and the people who are the saints. He's destroying God's people. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, against God. And he shall be broken. Who shall he be broken by? By God. It says, but by no human hand. It uses that same phrase when it's talking about the stone, which is hewn by no human hand. And it is thrown and it takes down all those kingdoms. It uses the same figure of speech there. God is the one who breaks him. Verse 26, we'll wrap up here in just a minute. Antiochus Epiphanes has a painful death. God is the one who brings it about. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. Seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel seeing in the future... He's appalled by the vision. He's absolutely appalled by, what, by what's taking place. He sees that God's people are going to be trampled. Uh, what does he do? 
Then I rose and I went about the king's business. What, what, what is that? Then I rose and went about the king's business? Like you, just, like you just were told like some massive history and you just got up and you went back to work? What's God want from you? To have so much hope and faith and trust in him that you can get up out of bed and go to work in spite of the things that are going on in your life, no matter what happens in the Supreme Court, no matter what happens in the next case that comes about, no matter what happens with persecution, no matter what happens. See, here's the thing. Jesus connects this passage, and that's why it's very interesting that there's this one who looks like a man standing on the bank talking because Jesus references this same passage. Matthew 24, verse 15 says, so when you see the abomination of desolation, that's the same thing, the abomination of desolation. That means the temple is desecrated and, and no one can meet there. Spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So when you see this, so Jesus is post-Maccabees, post this persecution that, that Daniel was prophesying about. Jesus is saying, okay, so when you see this abomination of de desolation, when you see this other antichrist, Jesus is saying, there's another one. Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's in the house up not go uh, down to take what is in his house. He goes on there talking about, like there is, there's another one coming. There's another one taking place. John says, in, ver, in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And what, what's this last hour we're talking about? Like, it, this, it's the last stop. It's the last act. We're in it. We're a part of it. John believed that, and he says, not only are we going to have a future Antichrist, but we're going to have many Antichrists. And who have we seen like that? Hitler, Stalin, Mao, whoever else. King John, uh, John Un. Who else, who else do you want to add into that? ISIS. We, we have seen these antichrists. So they're, they're coming. They're, they're a part of that. They have been. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, You look at what Israel is being judged for in verses 11 and 12 of Daniel 8. They took away the regular burnt offering. They took away the daily remembrance of sacrifice. That sacrifice represents Jesus coming and dying on the cross and being resurrected. So they're taking away that remembrance. So what should we do? Remember that regardless. It says, the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. The place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Where's the place of God's sanctuary today? It's with God's people. So God's sanctuary is with God's people. It's no longer a temple, a building. It is a group of people. So what do you do? You go back to work. You remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the gospel. 
You take part in the church. You don't give in to this stuff. You don't keep your religion private. You walk with God. And then the last thing it says in verse 12, it says, it will throw truth to the ground. We combat the lies of Satan in our culture. We combat those lies. We do it with gentleness and respect. What are those lies? That gay marriage is real marriage. It is not. God is the originator and founder of marriage. Gay marriage is not real. The most loving thing that we can do is to love the people that are involved in it enough to say, I will not participate. I will not bow down to your idols. What are the, what, what are the other lies? You determine your gender. Transgenderism, the lie of our culture. Buy into this lie that we can change the image of God in, in, in humanity, that we can determine what our biological sex is, who we have sex with, and how we go about this. And then we can scientifically like remove things and add things and somehow create this new sex. That's a lie. It will throw truth to the ground. Will you buy into it? Will you worship these, these things? The, the lies that are coming from our culture are massive, and we're believing them. We're believing them. We're transgressors. You, it may not be necessarily those big things, but we have little lies that we believe. It's my time. It's my kingdom. I'm going to make much of myself. Guess what? That's what Antiochus Epiphanes was doing, a prefigure of the future Antichrist. What should you do? Remember the sacrifices. Be a part of your local church and attend vigorously. Throw, uh, lift up truth in the air because it is God's truth. That's it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a difficult passage. Lord, I pray that you do something with it. I know that you will. Your word will not return void, it says. Lord, direct us this morning to eat of your word. Lord, allow no one in here to scornfully look at this, this apocalyptic literature in your word as I have in the past, and say it doesn't mean anything, it's just for the future. Lord, allow us to see your goodness, your grace, your mercy, but Lord, allow us to see how loving you are in your holiness and not allowing us to sin forever, but by setting a day when all will be reconciled. Lord, for those of us that have hope in you and that have received your gospel, what a glorious day it will be when you return. Lord, for those that have not received that, we are assured that that will not be a pleasant time. Lord, I pray that this sermon is not one that leads them to fear, but Lord, to embracing the love that you've shown us on the cross. It's in your name we pray, amen.